Hello, everyone. First of all, I'd love to thank you for tuning in to the Integrative Thoughts podcast. I am your host, Matt Kaufman. And through this platform, I plan on seeking out guests that interest me, that I am curious about, and overall just living a more meaningful, purposeful life in hopes that you as listeners and I myself can grasp onto a little bit of their knowledge and integrate that into our daily lives. If you are a longtime listener to the Integrative Thoughts podcast, you know how often I stress the importance of detoxification. I believe that heavy metals such as mercury and aluminum, along with environmental pollutants like mold, plastics, and pesticides, are at the root cause of every dysfunction and chronic illness in the modern era. That's why I recommend ZeoCharge. ZeoCharge is 100% natural zeolite that does not contain any fillers, binders, or additives. ZeoCharge has not been shown to bind to any of your beneficial minerals or other nutrients. I take two tablespoons of ZeoCharge with filtered water every single day about an hour after breakfast. It is my go-to for detoxification support that I believe can assist any and every healing protocol on the market. If you would like to try out ZeoCharge, go to the link in my show notes and use code ITP for 10% off your entire order. So listen, I've been experimenting with different types of minerals, especially magnesium, for the past five to six years. But I could never really find a product that I could feel the benefits that magnesium claimed to give. Magnesium is one of the most important minerals for all of human health. It participates in over 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, yet over 80% of the population is deficient. Magnesium deficiency can increase risk for all disease and greatly decrease optimal performance. That's why I like Bioptimizers. They use all seven forms of magnesium in a highly bioavailable form in their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, immune function, detoxification, and so much more. If you want to try out this product, head over to Buy Optimizers and use code INTEGRATIVETHOUGHTS10 to receive a 10% discount on their amazing product, Mag Breakthrough. Today's guest is Dr. Robert Wolf. He is the co-founder over at The Amino Company. And what they do is they specialize in making different formulas of specific targeted essential amino acids. Dr. Robert Wolf is a very unique guest. He used to be a professional basketball player, and then he was also a very competitive marathon runner. And in that time, over the last decades, he has spent tons and tons of time researching everything on aging, metabolism, and muscle performance. He has published over 500 peer-reviewed research articles that have been cited over 70 to 80,000 times. That's crazy, right? So we get into why protein is important in the diet and then very specifically into these essential amino acid supplementations. We talk a lot on this show about detoxification and fatty liver and different protein and essential amino acid needs for different chronic conditions. Because when you are in a catabolic state, you will have higher protein and essential amino acid requirements. So he has a blend specifically for um, fatty liver. He has other blends that are for performance or for just daily life and aging. This is an absolutely amazing show. If you want to try out anything over at the Amino Company, you can use my discount code. It's ITP30 and that will save you 30% off anything over at the Amino Company. I will link to it in the show notes. Dr. Robert Wolf, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, I'll have to admit, although aminos are one of my um, 
top supplements. I've used multiple different brands over the years and uh, really have dove into them quite a bit. I've never talked about them on the show. I didn't realize the immense body of research and knowledge and patents that you have done around all kinds of things like protein and amino acids. So I guess maybe we should start there and give anyone who's never heard of you a little background on just the overwhelming amount of uh, data you've just uh, put out into the world around this this whole uh, thing around protein, amino acids, metabolism, all the things. Yeah, well, um, I, that's one of the things is as you get older, then the body work gets bigger. So uh, <laughs> uh, part of that uh, is due to longevity, I think. But uh, it all started, and my, I, I've, uh, I was director of metabolism research at, uh, at the Shriners Hospital at Harvard Medical School for about uh, 15 years. Then I moved to uh, the same position at the University of Texas Medical School in conjunction with... Uh, Again, the Shriners Hospital, but, but at the same time, I started working quite a bit with NASA. And I had worked for 20, 25 years on various, uh, aspects of response and critical illness, particularly in severely burned children and how to, uh, address a lot of the, uh, problems that they, uh, uh, had in recovery. Not only wound healing, but the fact that they lost a tremendous amount of muscle and scar tissue uh, became a major issue. And all these factors related to severely burned children. Uh, uh, when I went to Texas, got involved with NASA, which uh, had particularly uh, picked up on the work I'd done with the muscle loss and burned children, and saw the analogy to what happens in spaceflight, where... Uh, the uh, astronauts lose uh, muscle mass quite rapidly because of the lack of gravity and no resistance in anything that they do. And uh, but at the same time, uh, being hindered in how much nutrition they could take with them. They can't take big uh, meals just, just because of the uh, amount of uh, weight on the uh, shuttle at the time. And so I kind of moved laterally into uh, trying to develop a nutritional supplement that would be... Uh, very uh, big bang for the buck, so to speak, to maintain the muscle mass and, and, and function uh, during spaceflight that uh, required as little actual physical mass as possible. So that uh, that led me to starting to look at uh, the factors that really regulate muscle metabolism in, in human subjects and, and uh, in particular, the essential amino acids. So in order to just give a little background, uh, the body has about 3,000 different proteins in the body, and these proteins are all composed of amino acids. Uh, the amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, and there are uh, 21 different amino acids in, in the proteins in the body, and 11 of these we call, or 9 of these we call essential amino acids, meaning that they can't be produced in the body, they have to be eaten. So they're really the only required nutrients that we have to eat. And, and it's been recognized since the early 1900s that these so-called essential amino acids had to be part of the, the diet. And, and we get those conventionally in the uh, diet through uh, protein products uh, such as animal proteins or even plant-based proteins. Uh, they all are distinct in the uh, exact pattern of the amino acids in the, uh, the amount and the pattern in each protein. So that what distinguishes one protein from another is the uh, amount of amino acids per gram of protein and, and the sequence that they occur in. 
And they're all different for all the different uh, amino acids, but taken together, they're called the essential amino acids. And so I took the uh, tact of, of like, well, if we have to have these essential amino acids, is it really necessary to have the non-essential amino acids as well that we get with dietary protein? Uh, the non-essential amino acids can be produced in the body. And, and the first set of experiments for, for the NASA study was to just uh, define the fact that, that, that actually the essential amino acids are all that are really needed to stimulate muscle protein production and, and, and maintain muscle mass even in the absence of resistance or other kinds of activity that normally maintain muscle mass. And that was sort of the the outset, and and it turned out it's like with a lot of things you kind of stumble into them, and and you're just uh, uh, fortunate if you happen to be paying attention because it it turned out that my initial thought was just these essential amino acids would be like eating uh, uh, a big steak, but without all the uh, extra things that come along with it, not just the uh, non-essential amino acids, but the other components of dietary protein like fat and carbohydrates, and that it would just be basically the same. But but it turned out that there was a big difference in the response and a much more amplified response to these free essential amino acids because of because of a couple of factors. One, that they're completely and rapidly digested, so that they don't require, if you eat a dietary protein, you have to digest the protein and break it down into the different amino acids, and they're absorbed over several hours. Whereas with the free essential amino acids that I was giving in the form of the supplement, they come immediately into the blood. They're directly absorbed, just like sugar, so that you get this rapid uh, uh, absorption. And also, the other aspect is with the dietary protein, you have the fixed ratio of amino acids in that protein. And that doesn't coincide to all the various roles that proteins play in the body. Uh, and you're kind of locked into it. But with the free essential amino acid supplements, you can make different combinations that uh, address specific metabolic requirements, not just muscle, but the neurotransmitters, immune function. They all require optimally a different formulation of essential amino acids and that really was uh in the late 1990s that i started working on this and since then uh discovered 14 different formulations that uh, are targeting specific metabolic uh uh issues and and uh and honed in on a lot of uh uh, uh, specific applications, but the, the cardinal approach was to first do basic studies that define sort of the metabolic molecular basis or why a particular formulation would work and then extend that to clinical trials that would actually test if the outcome is actually affected over weeks and months of treatment. And, uh, you know, that's been the, the approach that, that uh, I've used over the last 25 years to develop a whole range of uh, patents. I have 14 different formulations that have been patented. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a long-winded background, but sort of where it all came from and, and where we stand today. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I want to get into more of the supplementation, but I know you like to um, speak a lot about the diet as well. And you kind of speak, spoke about animal protein and is that the most optimal protein for the diet? First off, besides the essential amino acids, I'm assuming you believe it sounds like I've heard you in other shows talk about the importance of protein, a higher protein diet, which I tend to follow and feel best on. 
do you still agree with a high protein uh, intake? And then also, can we compare like animal protein versus plant protein? Which proteins are best? Sure. Uh, I think the first thing to understand about the diet is that there are a lot of things go into why somebody eats a particular diet, whether it be uh, uh, just purely taste, they think they're doing something good for themselves, uh, philosophical issues, and so forth. So, you know, I, I uh, you know, whenever talking about the diet, we'll at least uh, start off by saying that, uh, that I understand that these issues all come into play as to why somebody would uh, eat a particular diet. And, and my focus is mainly just nutritional. Uh, and, you know, these other aspects are, are things that you can weigh into. But I uh, have been part of the, uh, the Food and Agricultural Organization uh, Division of the World Health Organization to come up with uh, uh, metrics to define the quality of dietary protein. And through not just my studies, but studies done by many investigators over the years, it's evolved that there are uh, a couple of basic factors that define the uh, quality of dietary protein. And first is the digestibility. So that's pretty obvious that if you eat a protein, but it's not all digested, it has to actually get into the bloodstream to be effective. And that can be a major issue between uh, high-quality plant uh, animal-based proteins and, and plant-based proteins. If we take... Uh, eggs or beef, for example, at least 95% of what you eat is ultimately digested and absorbed. Uh, some of the dietary uh, plant-based proteins, such as wheat, for example, about 50% of uh, wheat protein is digested and absorbed. So that uh, as a starting place, we have to consider the digestibility and understand that if you're going to uh, eat a plant-based diet, for example, and rely on plant-based proteins, that uh, the amount of protein you need just to equal the amount of protein you've eaten with a plant uh, animal-based protein is going to be a lot more. So so that's one consideration. And, and, and the, uh, the general rule of thumb is that the uh, plant-based proteins are considerably lower in digestibility, but there are some, in particular soy protein, that are uh, pretty much the equal of, of uh, animal-based protein. So it's just something you need to be aware of. But the other aspect is the amount and quality of the uh, our profile of the essential amino acids in the dietary protein. We, ha we have known dietary requirements for all of the essential amino acids. And uh, the ideal protein basically matches the uh, profile of the amino acids that are required with the profile of amino acids in that dietary protein. So, for example, if you want to, uh, uh, if you take something like egg protein, it comes about the closest to matching the exact essential amino acid profile that's required to meet daily nutri uh, nutritional uh, requirements. So that when we're looking at the quality of the diet, when I say high-quality protein should be a, a significant part of the diet, that, that I'm talking about protein that is easily digested and the amino acids absorbed, and secondly, that the uh, profile of the amino acids in that dietary protein match up with what is actually required in the body. So uh, if we take a look at the experts' recommendations for the amount of protein we eat, as well as 
carbohydrate and fat, it comes up to about uh, 40% of the total energy requirement we need for the day. So I think the thing that's really underappreciated is the fact that we don't, when, when you hear quite a bit of people saying, well, you really eat more protein than, than is uh, required. Uh, well, that's because the, the total daily requirement of the nutrients is less than we need to maintain our body mass. And so we have this, uh, what, what I uh, consider discretionary dietary intake of about 60% of the calories we eat don't have to uh, be any specific mixture to meet the known dietary requirements, but rather uh, nutrients that will provide us extra benefits. And so uh, when we talk about eating more dietary protein than what the basic requirements are, realize that that's well within dietary guidelines, that we have 60% of dietary guidelines aren't accounted for with anything. So if you take even a skeptic's view, eating some component of that discretionary intake being protein is better than it all being fat or all being carbohydrate. Those are the uh, two alternatives to eating protein. So in just a common sense approach, we can see that that eating a, a, a dietary protein intake that exceeds the, uh, the uh, basic requirement uh, really only makes sense. And, and that's why when you look at a whole variety of health outcomes, eating a protein intake that's higher than the basic uh, requirement as articulated by these various organizations, that it's still well within the dietary guidelines and has a result of improving a whole variety of health outcomes. So, so the cornerstone of my whole approach is that uh, you eat a high-quality protein uh, diet that uh, exceeds the baseline uh, recommendations and that uh, has an optimal profile of amino acids. And this can be met with animal-based proteins quite readily. With plant-based proteins, it's a little trickier because some of the uh, commonly used plant-based proteins don't even contain all the essential amino acids or have a very skewed uh, mixture of them. And it is possible to match and mix so that you can combine them in a way to get uh, all the essential amino acids in the right proportion. But but that's a lot trickier. And, uh, you know, if you're doing the diet purely for a health standpoint, really uh, uh, a lot of extra work for something that, that may not really be beneficial because the amount of total calories you have to eat to get all your requirements uh, through plant-based proteins is going to be much higher caloric intake than with the animal-based proteins. So that, uh, so from a nutritional standpoint, it, it's very difficult to argue that you're not better off eating at least some of your protein intake being animal-based proteins. If you're going to stick to a vegan diet, then you really have to be conscious of exactly what proteins you're eating and how you match them with other proteins with different profiles of amino acids. And it, it's a lot more challenging. Yeah, I myself, I tried the vegan diet for like a year. It didn't work so well for me. And, you know, I was trying to do exactly what you were talking about, mixing and matching for the amino profiles and 
supplementing. I didn't know much about essential aminos at that time. This was quite a while ago, but um, yeah, I, I think the animal protein, at least for me, works best. Like you said, I know everybody's got the philosophies and the spiritual components that come into play with that, and maybe that's where aminos come in for them on a, on a plant-based diet, but for anybody who heard you speak there and was wondering what is that kind of recommended daily um, amount of protein that you think is just baseline? And then what's more like optimal in your opinion? Well, the uh, official recommendations of both uh, the World Health Organization and the U.S. dietary guidelines is uh, 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And that's kind of a difficult uh, number to wrap your head around because uh uh, they kind of, it kind of relies on you understanding exactly what those components are and what you're eating, which is pretty unusual. But uh, if we if we consider that the baseline for a 70 kilogram person, that would be like 150 pounds, 160 pound person, would be uh, about 50 grams of protein, then. Uh, that that person can safely eat 100 grams of protein, double that amount, and be well within dietary guidelines. I think that uh, different conditions call for different amounts of protein intake, and certainly that eating a double that amount for older people is absolutely essential because as you get older, the muscles, as I can testify personally, and that is your muscles just don't respond as well to the nutrient intake as they do when they're younger, it's, it's called anabolic resistance. There's a resistance of the muscle to the normal effect of dietary protein to, to build up the muscle and, and really maintain function and mass. Uh, I think that if, if you're doing exercise, both aerobic as well as anaerobic uh, or resistance exercise, extra dietary protein is essential to get maximal benefits. But even just... Uh, uh, a normal healthy diet will have at least uh, 1.2 grams or 50% above what the baseline requirements are. Uh, I think that what we see in many in a variety of circumstances is young, healthy adults that uh, really don't have anything particular like exercise or injury or any any problems are quite metabolically adaptive, so that whatever you eat is going to pretty much uh, uh, serve the purpose. And, and, and we're not so worried about the, the dietary protein intake in, in young, healthy people. But then the, there are so many potentially vulnerable populations that uh, call for a higher protein intake. And, and I think even with young, healthy people, we really need to look at the fact that, uh, that you uh, eat a diet that uh, minimizes excess caloric intake while achieving the metabolic goal. And I think that's one of the main reasons that people fo uh, matriculate towards the uh, plant-based diet without really understanding that to get their protein requirement, they've got to eat a lot more calories in a plant-based diet than they do in an animal-based uh, diet. So I think there are some real misconceptions around that. But all that being said... Uh, well, and I think, you know, we can talk a little about, uh, uh, about supplementation. <clears throat> the interesting aspect of the supplementation is that it can help you address some of the philosophical issues that often limit, uh, animal-based protein because the free amino acids, the way they're produced by fermentation, they're completely vegan. So the, 
they actually can be taken without disrupting any kind of a, a vegan profile of the diet. But uh, that, uh, you know, we could, we could go into that in a little more detail. But just as far as the diet itself, uh, I think that, that the facts are that a diet containing about twice the baseline measurement, uh, baseline requirement, or uh, 1.4, 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram per day with an uh, animal base as the major source of that dietary protein will be the most effective. Uh, and, and, you know, the philosophical issues that may underlie people's dietary choice, it's not just philosophical. I mean, as we look at older people, for example, things like... Uh, the cost of the, of the meat, the cooking, the chewing it, the taste preferences change. So there are a lot of factors that go into this. Uh, I'm just talking really from a very metabolic standpoint, not, uh, uh, taking into account the fact that, that what people actually want to eat can range in, in a variety of ways that, uh, that have nothing to do with nutrition. But I think as an underpinning of whatever diet you eat, you should understand the basic uh, nutritional principles of the fact that, that higher dietary protein intake is linked with many beneficial health outcomes over time. Yeah, and w one thing I want to kind of circle around to that you, you mentioned, and I found this to be true in my case, at least I think you were mentioning that specific cases also may require even what it sounded like to me, more of a protein intake. Um, and I found that to be true. Um, I had Lyme disease and a lot of uh, heavy metal exposure and had to do a lot of detoxification over the years from uh, parasites and chronic infections and metals and everything. And I found if I tried to lower my protein while doing that, um, you know, I would get other cravings for sweets. I wouldn't feel as well. And uh, have you found that to be true? People with specific like autoimmune or different conditions uh, needing a little bit more of a higher protein intake? Yeah, I think that I can't speak specifically to Lyme's disease. Uh, we have no studies in that. But but I think I can generalize pretty well because uh, we have studied a variety of clinical situations from recovery from surgery or severe injury to uh, uh well, diabetes and a whole range of, of issues. And there's no circumstance that uh, doesn't involve some what we call anabolic resistance. And that is that, uh, that the body has to mobilize proteins to combat whatever the problem is, whether it be Lyme's disease or, or tissue injury from surgery or whatever. It's got to mobilize extra, uh, extra uh, amino acids. And that what the major source of that mobilization is going to be breaking muscle down. And so that muscle breaks down. And as you're in this, what we call a catabolic state, a net loss of muscle protein, that weakens your whole body so that uh, uh, you really are not able to function as well. And actually, that affects your ability to even mount a good uh, immune response or a whatever uh you know, a tissue repair, whatever the clinical issue, so that, uh, so that you have a combination of problems. For example, with cancer, you have a, uh, a, an accelerated breakdown of muscle that's driven by the, t by the tumors because they want more amino acids and, uh, they will break down the muscle protein to provide those extra amino acids. And as a result, muscle loss is very prominent and muscle strength and, 
And along with that comes just a, a debilitating feeling that just uh, makes it very difficult to even complete chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So that's really kind of analogous to what you're saying, that uh, that if you uh, don't account for the increase in protein requirement or amino acid requirement of, of these clinical states, you're going to have an overall rundown feeling stemming from the breakdown of the muscle protein that's that's required to provide the adequate nutrition for the healing process. And so I think that in a variety, as I said, I have 14 different circumstances. I have patents on different, what's the optimal formulation. There's not a single thing we've ever investigated other than a severe renal disease where you can't excrete nitrogen. That would be the only circumstance where a decrease in diet that were that I've ever come across that a, a decrease in dietary protein might be advantageous. And even in that circumstance, there's debate because uh, it does cause renal disease causes a big loss of muscle protein and and a lot of problems stemming from that. So that's kind of debatable. But in general, we would say that that that, that a decrease in dietary protein might be appropriate there. But in every other clinical circumstance. You need the extra amino acids to mount a, a response to whatever the clinical problem is. Yeah, I, I totally found that to be the case. Um, you know, I'd done some research and that's when I got into amino acid supplementation. I was um, listening to podcasts and I, you know, found, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Minkoff. That's who my Lyme um, disease doctor was and he's really good and has like an 85% success rate with cancer and Lyme and he has his own amino acid supplement company and most people are pretty familiar with that um, if you're not I think it's like body health or something they make their own amino tablets or whatever he's just I don't know they're different from yours for sure but um, he's just really big around aminos and that's what got me interested in them and he would basically say that his patients as far as the detoxification with these chronic illnesses um, would detox at around about 30% faster or something like that when he, they, he would get them on about 10 grams of amino acids daily. So that's kind of where I first got into it. It seems like you're kind of in that same wheelhouse of the fact that people do need extra aminos when they are dealing with some conditions like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that uh, is also uh, about the dosage level that we found. I think one of the things that's interesting uh, the uh, study I did with the NASA astronauts was the first uh, description of using an essential amino acid supplement. That was in the late 1900s. And uh, from uh, 19, 2015 to date, there have been over 100 clinical trials uh, with essential amino acids in different formats. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's become pretty widely accepted. I think that... Uh, you know, the, the specific combination of amino acids that's used differ and the, uh, the, you know, there are different factors that are involved. But I think that uh, there's, among the scientific and medical community, a pretty widespread appreciation of the importance of, uh, of the uh, supplementation of a good diet with the free amino acids and the benefit that uh, particularly targeted formulations of essential amino acids can provide that, that go beyond anything you can get just with the diet alone. Yeah. And I, I definitely want to get into why your um, formulations are unique in just a second. And a uh, really common question that I, I feel like you get asked every time, but I feel like you might as well touch on it because someone's going to ask is 
what is the uh, difference between like branch chain amino acids versus essential amino acids? Because I know somebody's going to uh, ask me that question if I don't if I don't ask you. Yeah, well, I think that um, the branch chain amino acids refer to three amino acids: leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And the branch chain just refers to their molecular structure. Uh, those three amino acids are three of the nine essential amino acids. So they are. Uh, they aren't different. They are, in fact, required essential amino acids. And leucine alone is the highest uh, uh, content in muscle protein. So that uh, leucine is a, a, an abundant uh, essential amino acid that is uh, uh, the most commonly occurring amino acid in muscle protein, for example. Uh, beyond that, leucine, at, at least in high enough doses that uh, you stimulate a uh, significant increase in the plasma levels of leucine can act as what we call a nutraceutical so that it can, can actually activate some of the molecular processes that are involved in stimulating the uh, production of new uh, important proteins that, that, that need to be produced on a regular basis. Uh, but that being said, the leucine alone or bad chains alone are not sufficient to produce intact proteins because you need all of the essential amino acids to uh, uh, comprise a, a, uh, a, or, or produce a new protein. So that when we see branched-chain amino acids alone, they may have a, a, a transient effect because it can stimulate some reutilization of amino acids that might normally be oxidized and excreted, but that's very short-lived. Uh, the optimal formulation of free amino acid mixtures will incorporate a significant amount of the branched-chain amino acids, depending on the circumstance, but it, it may be quite a bit, maybe over 50% of the total, but you still need all the others to complete, to produce complete proteins, because the proteins contain all the essentials. You can't produce the other six that aren't branched-chain amino acids in the body, so that the extra stimulation that you might get from the branch chains has to be matched with all the other amino acids that comprise the uh, proteins that are being produced. So, so the summary is that branch chains are part of the essential amino acid mixture, and an important part, but not the only part. <clears throat> yeah, and so thanks for breaking that down, because I think that's a common misconception. You know, I grew up back in, uh, before the, uh, internet was available and my brother was a bit older than me and all we really knew was uh you know muscle magazines and gnc and my brother were like in high school had me drinking branch chain amino acids and i always thought that was the way but now i feel like we uh, most people at least in like the biohacking sphere and the health sphere are coming around to the importance of all of the aminos um together and i i read through some of the documents that your team sent over to me and i was kind of curious around this topic of why you wouldn't want to supplement um, maybe like singular um, amino acids or maybe the branch chains as well because and it kind of piqued my interest because I um, recently just uh, got certified as a hair tissue mineral analysis practitioner and I'm now in kind of this school of thought around how minerals and vitamins all interact with each other and by dosing random you know singular nutrients you're definitely going to have an effect on another nutrient and it sounds like this actually may um, exist in the amino acid world as well. Can you speak to that? Sure. I think that that's uh, kind of part of the whole principle of the different formulations of amino acids, both at the amino company cells and others that are still in the evaluation stage. 
because by uh, and I, I preface what I'm going to say by uh, reiterating the importance of the basal diet, so that when we manipulate the uh, profile of the amino acids that is in the supplement, it's a supplement. You're not eliminating an amino acid altogether from the diet. You're just uh, decreasing its prevalence relative to the other amino acids. So a good example would be uh, the uh, use of essential amino acids to optimize uh, alertness and cognition, particularly useful in workouts, uh, getting ready for workout or maintaining workout to kind of uh, mitigate the uh, uh, sort of br uh, mental fatigue that can occur over a long workout. And the, the neurotransmitters that are responsible for that uh, fatigue or, or excitement are as the balance between dopamine and serotonin. So dopamine is the excitatory neurotransmitter, which really uh, activates the cognition, it activates excitement, it's, uh, it, it's an alertness, where serotonin is just the reverse. It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter that is, is key to going to sleep. And, uh, you know, I think that the old joke about eating a lot of turkey puts you to sleep because it's high in tryptophan stems from the fact that the serotonin is produced from tryptophan. In contrast, the, uh, the dopamine is produced from tyrosine, which is uh, a different large uh, neutral amino acid. And through manipulation of the, of the formulation, we can alter the ratio of these precursors, tyrosine and tryptophan, so that we emphasize the production of dopamine and suppress the production of, of serotonin. So that uh, the overall mixture will reduce the tryptophan because it stimulates protein synthesis by adding all the other essential amino acids other than tryptophan. Tryptophan has to be incorporated into the protein to make complete proteins, and the only source of that is the, is the protein, the uh, tryptophan that's floating around in the blood. So you lower the tryptophan availability. And secondly, you add amino acids which block the uptake of serotonin uh, precursor, namely the tryptophan, into the brain. At the same time, you increase the availability of the tyrosine so that its uptake into the brain is accelerated. So we're able to manipulate this state of consciousness without any kind of uh, drug or, or any other uh, uh, traditional kind of uh, uh, stimulant by uh, just modifying the ratio of uptake of these two amino acids into the brain and have shown that it uh, increases cognition and alertness for at least three hours after a single dose. And uh, without any risk, any adverse effects, there's no uh, caffeine crash or, you know, uh, insulin response to sugar, high sugar beverage or something. So that that's that that would be one example. Another example is that there's a specific amino acid methionine, which seems to be uh, a uh, key factor in producing liver fat, and this is becoming a major issue in in uh, precursors to diabetes and uh, other metabolic diseases. And so, by doing the same sort of approach that I described for reduce altering this ratio of serotonin to uh, dopamine, we're able to reduce the amount of methionine in the liver relative to other amino acids, and, and that that uh, has, in a variety of circumstances, uh, we've shown that reduces the liver fat. 
So these are just examples, but the main one that really started everything, uh, going back to the NASA studies, was the formulation that was uh, optimal for, for maximizing the production of new muscle protein. And that one actually does have a high proportion of leucine, but all the other amino acids that are needed to uh, produce uh, muscle at a rate that's several folds greater than the highest quality dietary protein. So, you know, this is the this is why I think that it's great that people are recognizing the uh, importance of essential amino acids in general. But I think that you know it's a much more subtle uh, point that's a little harder to get across that all formulations are not the same, and that uh, that they're marketed for different. Uh, reasons because they, uh, well, they all have a commonality in, in general and how they act. There are different specific combinations that are optimal for particular metabolic circumstances. Pardon the interruption. I want to take a quick break to talk about gut health. With all the research coming out over the last decade, we know exactly how important the gut microbiome actually is for our overall health. If you're anything like me, then you have struggled with tons and tons of gut issues. I grew up on a lot of different antibiotics. As I got older, I did a lot of partying, drugs, alcohol, standard American diet, yada, yada, yada. Fast forward, I had chronic mold toxicity in line. After that, I really couldn't get my gut to function properly. I spent tons and tons of money on different kefirs, yogurts, probiotics, different things that really didn't seem to work. That is until I found Just Thrive. It's a 100% spore-based probiotic that arrives 100% alive in your gut for maximum impact. It has a thousand times better survivability versus other leading probiotics. It helps support digestive, immune, and total body health. For me, it really helped to beat bloating, gas, constipation, and diarrhea. And it is even clinically proven to address leaky gut in just 30 days. So what I do is I take two caps with my largest meal and it really helps to improve nutrient absorption as well. And they are backed by a 100% money back guarantee. So for if any reason it doesn't work for you, no questions asked, you can get a refund. If you wanna try out Just Thrive Spore-Based Probiotics, go over to Just Thrive Health and use code ITP15 for 15% off at the checkout. If you're anything like me in the health and optimization space, you're not only looking for which supplements may make you feel optimal, but also different technologies. The problem with most technologies on the market is they can really burn a hole in your pocket. If you are looking for the most affordable, but yet yet highly effective technologies that help promote detoxification, better sleep, mitochondria function, immune function, look no further than Therasage. I have their portable infrared sauna and I am willing to put that sauna against any other sauna on the market. It heats up quickly. I get an amazing sweat. I've been in some of these really, really expensive saunas and I prefer my Therasage sauna. The new addition that I have in my home is the Therasage PEMF mat. This is a game changer. A lot of people who are dealing with chronic illness and autoimmune conditions could really benefit for at-home PEMF. When you're trying to do PEMF out at a clinic, it can charge like 30, 60, sometimes $100 per session. Therasage has just dropped the most affordable PEMF mat on the market. You can use it daily. It has a TENS mat. It has red light. It's a heating pad. My wife is absolutely obsessed with this thing. 
It has just brought more energy, mental clarity, and all around overall well-being. I gave up my morning meditation recently and just started laying on the PEMF mat. It's such a great addition to have that with the sauna. The PEMF will help you to release a lot of the toxins and then you can sweat those out via the sauna and you will just feel rejuvenated. So if you wanna try out any of the Therasage products, you can use the code Kaufman10. I will link to their website in the show notes. They have the most amazing affordable technology biohacks on the planet. Yeah. So are there any kind of clinical reasons that, you know, a lot of people now are just taking singular like L-carnitine or, you know, glycine supplements. Do you find any validity in that or do you think they should always be balanced with uh, within like an amino acid complex? Well, it'd be a sweeping statement to say there's no validity to uh, taking a single amino acid. And I think that carnitine specifically may have some advantages, particularly if you are deficient to begin with. Uh, I think that the, with a normal diet, that uh, carnitine is rarely uh, uh, going to be deficient. But I think that, that the uh, use of single amino acids uh, has a limited application and is much more likely to cause a disruption in the balance. You earlier referred to the fact that, you know, when you take one thing, it, it affects other things. You may have unanticipated uh, effects. And I think that my experience with single amino acids is that the unexpected effects resulting from this real imbalance that you create in the uh, blood uh, may be detrimental, at least not beneficial or counteract the effect. And We've only done a few studies. We've done studies with uh, lysine alone and leucine alone and found both of them to be ineffective as compared to uh, a balanced mixture that, that uh, takes into account the, the fact that all of the essential amino acids are generally required for the majority of the metabolic purposes in the body. And so I, I, it's sort of philosophically, I think that the idea of taking one is like making it like a medicine. And, uh, you know, if it, if it worked, that would be fine. I'm not really aware of any single amino acid treatment that has proven to be particularly beneficial. And it always worries me to throw the balance of the amino acids in the blood out of whack as much as you do when you take just one individual amino acid. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, we do, we do in the, um, <clears throat> hair tissue mineral analysis community we do use a little lysine um only in one pattern and 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 when they come out of that pattern we no longer it's lysine it's a calcium synergist and that's why they use it it helps people come out of a specific four lows Mm -hmm. pattern but i wonder if we were to do that long you know once the ratios change then you don't you no longer um, recommend that so i wonder if that was like a long-term thing then we may be throwing something out of balance there, but it's usually only a couple months uh, to just try to get them out of a specific pattern. But yeah, thanks for clarifying on that. One thing I did want to talk about is, you know, if, if someone is um, eating a high protein diet, like we specified earlier, you know, they're working out generally healthy, what would be the benefits to adding in these um, a specific amino acid supplement, whether that be perform or something like that? Yeah. Well, the, uh, Free amino acids turn out to provide a benefit that you can't achieve with dietary protein. And that has to do with the uh, fact that they're completely digest- completely absorbed very rapidly. So that 
when you take a uh, eat a, a high quality dietary protein like whey protein would be about the fastest absorbed and the concentrations rise very slowly and after two or three hours uh, the concentration of the aminos from that digested protein will you know gradually be creeping up above the baseline in contrast the uh, the free amino acids peak within 30 minutes after taking them at, at a several fold higher concentration than you get from the dietary protein. So that those amino acids can actually act as a signal that uh, activates the whole process that uh, is being targeted, namely the production of new protein. So that, uh, that the reason the blood levels go so high is that they come in so fast that the, the intestine and the, and the liver and other tissues that normally clear a lot of the uh, dietary amino acids coming from protein, because they're coming in very slowly, the higher rate of entry just bypasses that and gets most of the uh, amino acids delivered to the peripheral blood, which is the goal. And then at a concentration high enough that it, that it activates these different metabolic processes that you don't ever get an activation with the dietary protein. And, and the result is that what we see is, uh, for gram for gram basis, uh, three to, anyway, depending on the protein, three to five fold greater response to the free essential amino acid mixture than to the, uh, dietary protein. Now, that is not due just to the absorption because as I have been, uh, kind of focusing on, the profile of those uh, free amino acids can be modified to be particularly beneficial for the process of like muscle protein production or liver fat reduction or attention increase. All of those factors can be affected by the profile as well as how rapidly they're absorbed. And uh, you really can't do that with dietary protein. Uh, so the dietary protein is important because over time, you can't eat just essential amino acids. The non-essential amino acids can be produced in the body, but at some point they're going to become limiting if you're eating just essential amino acids. And you get nutrients with plant, uh, with, with, uh, the dietary protein like iron and, and other minerals and, uh, vitamins and so forth that you don't get with the free amino acids unless they're specifically added as, as components. So that, uh, so that the, the diet, as I've said before, the diet is crucial. It's important. We should really focus on it. But alone, it can't activate some of these processes that are so important to, for optimal performance and health. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I love the aminos, um, specifically from just busy, you know, don't have time to really make, make a meal. You can just have a few scoops of the aminos and feel good for, like you said, two, three hours or if it's just a day where I just didn't cook as much protein as I normally do. And I still feel like I want to, um, you know, get, try to bump that amino uh, acid profile up. I mean, they're absolutely phenomenal. And before we get into my main discussion around detoxification, you kind of mentioned a little bit about aging. And is there a specific age where you think that people should be focused on um, amino acid supplementation, like when they should really start to dial it in? I know it's beneficial for like all ages, especially if you're an athlete, but is there a, like an age 30, 40 where, you know, it starts to really decline and people really should uh, amp up the supplementation? I think that uh, around 50 is the, the, the sort of the break point where uh, you start, that everyone starts losing some muscle. You know, the, uh, 
if you don't exercise, don't work out at all, and, and don't eat a, a particularly high-protein diet, muscle loss starts as early as 30. But you don't really notice any functional effects of it. You start really uh, seeing some functional effects when you're 50. And uh, I, I just, on a personal uh, level, could really see this quite clearly because I ran marathons. I, I uh, uh, ran about two or three marathons and trained hard for many, many years. And uh, then, you know, maintained a pretty high level up through my 40s. But then once I turned 50, it just started sliding downhill. And that's consistent with a lot of the uh, uh, body composition data and functional capacity that by 50, you're, you're starting to lose protein, both uh, muscle mass as well as muscle function. And, and, and waiting until you've lost it, like in your 60s or 70s, it's so much harder to put it back on. The, uh, the, and that's why I really emphasize that once you get into the 50s, you really need to start uh, supplementing the diet with, uh, with uh, aminos specifically targeting to promote uh, muscle mass and function because uh, you're going to be losing it even if you're working out. Your, your performance is going to start going down. Your mass, muscle mass is going to go down. And uh, it's, it's really important to prevent that from occurring to, to a level. If you take 70-year-old people, there's a huge range in how functional people are. Uh, the, the rate of loss really hinges on what you've done all your life. But, uh, you know, if you're in a state where you really uh, have decreased muscle function, muscle mass, it's really hard to put it back on once you're that age. It's much more important to prevent it from, from uh, declining as rapidly as it would without the exercise and without the aminos. So that's sort of the guideline I use for the product we have called Life, which is really targeted for older individuals. It's not for old age. It's for... Uh, uh, it, the, the reason it, what it does is prepare you better for old age by <laughs> decreasing the rate you lose. I mean, you know, take it from me, you can't stop it altogether, but you can definitely slow down the loss of muscle mass and function if you start paying attention to it before it occurs in any real significant amount. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I think that a lot of people, you know, if anyone's listening to my show, they're probably taking their health somewhat seriously, I'd imagine, or trying to, you know, figure out some steps to get there. And, you know, I'm, I'm 35, but I like to look at, you know, in the future, you know, what what is the cause, you know, for a lot of, you know, older people. And it does seem like muscle wasting and, you know, not doing resistance training plays a big role. And I think amino acids definitely fit into that category where if you're proactive and you're worried about it, you know, on the front end that you can, you know, decrease some of these issues, especially, uh, you know, you've talked about healing and, you know, from surgery and, you know, older people tend to have more of that. Um, um, if they fall, you know, a lot of times they don't have enough muscle or balance to catch themselves and they can have some tragic issues, um, with, from falling, you know, in older age, but, you know, might be less likely if they've been pretty strategic around some kind of like, you know, higher protein diet and amino acid intake over time, they might be better off from some of those falls, slips, different things that just happen with life. Yeah, well, it's inevitable. Uh, no one is going to have smooth sailing from the beginning <laughs> to the end. I mean, that's, uh, that's for sure. And, uh, 
you know, to, to, to get into the program of exercise and amino acid supplementation as you get older really uh, prevents those episodes from being crippling. In other words, if you, uh, well, for taking my own circumstance, so a year ago I ruptured an Achilles uh, doing sprints up the hill. And uh, I think that my recovery was a lot better. I'm able now to walk the golf course and, and uh, uh, still not running it, but, but at least recovered to where all other functions, including uh, walking 18 holes and, and doing a lot of physical things, reflect the fact that I had uh, been doing the exercise in amino acids before it occurred. So it wasn't just a matter of taking it in for recovery, but, but better preparing myself to... Uh, to minimize the, the negative effect that occurred because over the first couple of months after rupturing the Achilles, you couldn't do much of anything. And if you're already in kind of a dilapidated state, then you're going to go over the edge of functionality to where now you're really impaired, not just because of the original injury, but because you, uh, had a very, uh, quite a very marginal functionality to begin with. And now you go, drop below that because of the response to the to the trauma or whatever the sickness and never really get back to uh where you were before and uh i think that's why you just have to uh be sort of prophylactic of taking these things and doing this stuff before you feel like you really need it because that better prepares you to deal with it when it happens yeah i totally agree um so for this last part, I, you know, I, I, everyone always talks about, you know, protein and amino acids as far as, you know, performance. And that's usually the common questions people talk about when they're talking about the subject. But I really like to dive into the weeds with you about like, um, I have your packet here around fatty liver disease and detoxification. And so what role do some of these essential aminos play when it comes to like liver health and uh, detoxification, which I think, most people are starting to become aware of how, you know, ubiquitous the toxins are in our environment, how easily people can have liver dysfunction just from poor diet and just poor habits in general on top of the toxins. So let's dive into um, how the essentials actually affect detoxification and liver health. Uh, I think, you know, to just kind of start at square one, I mentioned that the body has about 3,000 proteins in the body. And these proteins, every one of them, uh, is in a constant state of turnover, meaning that they're broken down and uh, resynthesized. Uh, uh, this process, in a general sense, is crucial for well-being because uh, the breakdown of the proteins that are kind of old and used and not functioning as well is, are replaced by better functioning, newer proteins. If we think about muscle, it's easy to think about muscle fibers getting broken uh, down uh, as a course of exercise and being produced, the new ones that being better functioning. But that's true with everything, with the enzymes in the body uh, that, that, that are involved in other metabolic reactions. And, and so we need to maintain this turnover. And detoxification is really a way to, uh, the, the way to think about this is that it's accelerating the breakdown of proteins that are no longer functioning in a way that is optimal. Uh, and that, that to really regain optimal health, they need to be disposed of and new ones produced at an accelerated rate to uh, get back into a balance where you're now 
uh, dealing with uh, highly functional proteins, you've gotten rid of some of the old proteins. And I, I think that the concept is, it, well, it's gaining emphasis. Uh, it's nothing new in the sports world. You know, back, I found an article that's interesting in 1971, the Fukuoka Marathon, which at the time was the biggest marathon in the world, that all top 10 finishers had fasted for at least 10 days prior to uh, the uh, race. And I think that, uh, and I had uh, had done quite a bit of studies back in the early days on the response, metabolic response to fasting, where you see an initial early response, which is then followed by a uh, uh, really a regenerative response. And so it's 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 very analogous to uh, what you're talking about and what you do. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's the same general idea, and that is that. The, the so-called cleansing aspect is getting rid of the proteins in the body that uh, by the process of accelerated breakdown that are not beneficial and replacing them with better better uh, better functioning proteins. And the way we do that is by providing the amino acid precursors to to uh, rebuild those proteins at an accelerated rate so that uh, so in terms of the metabolic state, it's all part of the same thing that that uh, we want to have highly functioning proteins in the body, and sometimes that requires an accelerated breakdown to uh, get rid of the proteins that aren't working so well and, and, and have the ability to reproduce those proteins at, uh, at, a, at a faster rate so that you can get back to uh, a highly functioning state. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that is the general principle. We could talk about specific applications, but, uh, you know, that, that's sort of my thought about the general role of amino acids in detox that, uh, that they're needed for the, for the regeneration phase of the process. Yeah, that makes total sense. One amino acid that I want to get into that I've done a little bit of research around that I, I kind of gravitate towards, especially because of the heavy metal accumulation I had is, um, is histidine, L-histidine. And I know you like to have that in, I think, every formula that I've seen. Um, have you looked into the research around histidine and uh, detoxification and, like, heavy metals? Yeah, well, the, uh, not specifically heavy metals, but histidine is the prominent one, particularly in the liver health uh, uh, cleanse uh, uh, formulation because there are several aspects of, the, uh, uh, of histidine action which uh, are beneficial for... Uh, inflammation that can occur in the liver and, and elsewhere in the body. So that, uh, uh, I think, you know, it's interesting that, uh, in the early days of understanding essential amino acids, histidine wasn't even considered an essential amino acid. But, uh, as studies have, uh, been done that, that look at more function than just growth and development, uh, it's become clear that histidine has a, an important role in a variety of uh, processes in the body. And, and uh, on my own work is is an important component of the uh, uh, treatment for uh, uh, liver liver uh, cleansing. Nice. And I know in your pack, packet, you do mention something around, which is this really piqued my interest, obviously, because I talked about minerals and how when we are balancing out the minerals within the hair parameters, we like to see that copper, that excess copper come out. And uh, in the packet, it says that histidine is uh, possibly regulates copper accumulation in the liver. Is that is that true? Well, it's been, I, I think that uh, 
in human studies, that's a tough one to definitely address. In animal studies, it definitely has been shown to. Uh, I think that the liver is obviously a challenging uh, uh, organ to study because it's not not readily accessible in humans. So we can get uh, some samples when we, uh, 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 you know, for example, in bariatric surgery, but uh, but there are kind of obscure circumstances so that uh, uh, we have to rely on animal studies sometimes. And I think that that's the basis for the uh, uh, what we know so far about about uh, copper and, and histidine. But that is definitely, uh, uh, and, and exactly how it is related to liver fat isn't clear, but it is definitely related to liver fat. So lowering the histidine availability will... Uh, increase uh, the deposition of liver fat, which is the precursor to inflammatory response and fibrosis and ultimately uh, to uh, uh, cirrhosis. So that uh, I think histidine is, it's interesting that, that you select that out because uh, I think I've always considered it kind of the underappreciated uh, essential amino acid that it has, as leucine does, I think that, that leucine has been a, been uh recognizes a nutraceutical in relation to protein synthesis. Histidine has a uh, nutraceutical role in a variety of other aspects, particularly related to inflammatory response, and that uh, that people will gradually appreciate the fact that, for example, if you take just branched-chain amino acids, you're not getting any histidine, and that even uh, some formulations of uh, essentials are very light in the histidine, but that it actually is an important amino acid for a variety of health outcomes. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I was super excited um, when I received your products and looked into them for the show and everything and, and seen that I had histine and everything because that's actually become one of my favorites and I feel like it's overlooked and usually not talked about during these podcasts and I wanted to shed a little light on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. You're the first person that's ever brought that up to me, but uh, 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 it has been a specific uh uh, a specific aspect of the uh, work that I've done. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. And um, so, just in general, though, with you know, aside from detoxification, it sounds like you spent a good amount of time just talking or uh, researching uh, aminos and fatty liver disease. And I think a lot of people may think that they only someone only has cirrhosis or fatty liver disease if they're like an alcoholic and they drink all the time. So let's um, talk about like you know, how common fatty liver disease actually is, um, alcoholic or not? Well, they break down uh, fatty liver accumulation, uh, fatty acid accumulations in the liver in the form of triglyceride into alcoholic and non-alcoholic. Uh, the studies that we've done actually don't distinguish between the two. We see the effectiveness of, uh, of reducing the methionine to the other amino acids in both uh, alcoholics as well as uh, uh, other individuals with fatty liver. The fatty liver is most common now, and the reason it's increasing so much is that it's a function mostly of obesity. But the thing that's interesting about it is that it's not just a place where fat is stored. Normally, the liver isn't meant to store fat, and just because you're obese doesn't mean you've got a fatty liver. Only a percentage, maybe in the range of 50% of people that are obese have extra fat deposited in the liver. And 
so that there's a metabolic basis to this development of fat in the liver that uh, uh, is enhanced by the fact that you have a whole lot of extra body fat. And that's why there's so much interest in the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease now because because it's a function function of obesity, which is t- taking over uh, everybody's consciousness in, in the whole field of nutrition. But uh, But it's not that simple. Because everybody that's obese doesn't have fatty liver disease. And, uh, and the fundamental difference between the, uh, fatty liver deposition and as a result of alcoholism versus obesity is, I think, less clear than, uh, considered. I think that, uh, you know, that, that it has been thought of in the context that, well, uh, that, that actually, it's much more of a metabolic problem in alcoholism because most alcoholics aren't necessarily obese, but they have a higher propensity to have the fat in the liver. True enough, but uh, everybody that's obese doesn't get fat in the liver. So there's metabolic uh, fat, uh, regulation, regulatory processes that are out of whack that cause the uh, fat to accumulate in the liver. And, and what my work has shown is it's a whole variety of factors that come into play. It, it has to do with how how well the fat is cleared from the blood and in, and in fact uh, uh, how well the, the peripheral adipose tissue can clear the fat from the blood as opposed to having it come back to the liver. So it's a very complex uh, issue but one that uh, has become uh, a major concern because it's uh, not only a precursor for developing uh, uh, hepatic steatosis and uh, and liver disease and and ultimately cirrhosis. But even prior to the uh, development of serious liver disease, fat deposition of the liver impairs normal regulation of metabolism and is highly correlated with the development of uh, metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So that I think over the past several years, the importance of reducing liver fat from a metabolic health standpoint is becoming much more appreciated and understood that it can occur in people without obesity or with obesity, but but that it may be an independent uh, occurrence and that, that it should be treated directly and minimized to the extent possible, which, as we've shown in four different clinical trials, uh, can effectively be done with a mixture of essential amino acids. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how the aminos seem to affect the liver health in that way. I mean, I, I have these packets are all broken down. You know, <clears throat> the one says even 13 grams of essential amino acids twice a day for a month has been shown to lower excess accumulation of lipids in the liver mild, with people to mild to moderate alcohol use, even when no other nutritional changes occur or the alcohol consumption even stays the same. Yeah, the thing, what you said is, is, is funny because I'll tell you how we stumbled on this. The study we were doing was, uh, initially was providing older free living individuals, uh, dietary supplement of an essential amino acid blend, which was, uh, uh, targeting muscle health and function. And they were maintained for 16 weeks. And, uh, we were simultaneously trying to get a method worked out using, uh, magnetic resonance imaging where uh, we could quantify liver fat. 
So I wasn't part of this first experiment. We didn't really have any thought that the uh, aminos, uh, the aminos that we were giving for muscle function would, would have any impact on the liver. We were just doing the liver test to see if we could get the methodology worked out to actually measure it. And lo and behold, it turned out that uh, the uh, older individuals had significantly elevated liver fat, that it's part of the aging process is developing fatty liver, and that the aminos caused a 50% reduction in the liver fat. So that observation preceded any thought that, that it actually would occur, or even a, an idea of how it would work. And so that, of course, led to uh, some exciting research really starting to pin down the processes that are involved in developing fatty liver and how amino acids can help that and, and what optimal formulation and, and so forth and so on. But it all stemmed from the fact that uh, we were really just uh, trying to get the methodology sorted out to, to measure it. We didn't even have any thought initially that it would have a beneficial effect. So so it's one of those cases where the, uh, the aminos seem to have a role that wasn't even predictable, but that uh, has helped us really understand basic liver metabolism in a much uh, clearer way and I, I think uh, developed an approach that has no adverse effects and can really uh, reduce the liver the detrimental effects of the liver fat even as as you were citing in a study where alcoholics were not even reducing their alcohol consumption but you know it's not something that we really we want to promote, <laughs> but uh, uh, I take these tomatoes in your cupboard. You can drink as much as you want, but uh, but the fact is that it's a, a physiological response that uh, isn't just targeting one specific metabolic reaction, but the overall balance of uh, lipid metabolism in the body that re- results in reduced liver fat. Yeah, I mean, it's just... A lot of people, you know, listen to the show. I'm not, I'm not judgmental here. I used to be an alcoholic, so I'm not judging if you want to go out and drink, but maybe, um, take something that'll help support, like, uh, the one you have for liver health here is called Purity. And I'm assuming that's what you would recommend for somebody who's probably still likes to drink a little bit or, you know, do whatever and you, you know, uh, you have fun and be social, do you live your life, whatever. But, you know, maybe you have a little aminos in your cupboard to help you out, help the liver out. Um, one yeah, other I thing think that's, that, that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, I just I mean, to say that's a reasonable approach. It's not uh, we're not preaching uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, abstinence, but uh, <laughs> not not trying to promote uh, that that it covers you either. But uh, it's definitely a good idea. Yeah, I mean, most people listening to the show probably aren't alcoholics, you know, but they you know might have some fun on the weekends here and there, or go to a concert or whatever. You have a little bit of a uh, this purity aminos in your cupboard to help you out, or just take aminos on a daily basis just so you're already covered and in general that's what i do um one other part we focus on the liver a lot but one thing that we kind of focus on in the um htma community is kidney health because we see as people start moving around a lot of the metals from the mineral balancing that the kidneys get overwhelmed and we need some kidney support is there um research around aminos for a little bit of kidney support while you're detoxing yeah uh Keep in mind that the uh, metabolic role of the kidney is to get rid of urea and ammonia, which are the end products of the uh, breakdown of aminos. And specifically, uh, the primary uh, amino acids that are broken down to form ammonia and urea are glutamine and arginine. Well, those amino acids are not in the essential amino acid mixtures, but they are required 
to be incorporated into newly produced proteins. So that what we see in uh, providing the essential amino acids is a drop in the levels of arginine and glutamine as well as the other non-essentials because they've got to be available for incorporation into new protein. So that the actual rate of ammonia production and urea production is decreased while you're maintaining or even improving your muscle mass uh, status by uh, virtue of the fact that the uh, the aminos uh, that you're providing are not a complete mixture of protein precursors. You have to use what's already in the body and therefore you're incorporating glutamine and arginine and other precursors of ammonia and urea into protein rather than breaking them down and having to have the kidney excreted so that it absolutely uh, improves the uh, uh, muscle mass while actually providing less of a stress on the kidney. And, and I mentioned earlier that, you know, in any sort of renal disease or decreased function that, that it's... Uh, may be recommended to decrease protein intake, but that has the negative effects that you have with the low protein intake in terms of loss of uh, vitality and, and muscle function in particular. But you don't need to uh, uh, have that be the case because if you decrease total dietary protein intake but take the essentials, you're going to have less production of ammonia and urea so you can maintain the muscle while providing less of a burden to the kidney. Awesome. That's good to know. Is there any subject that I missed that you think is important for fatty liver or detoxification before we move on? Well, it's not really detoxification. I think one of the things that's becoming, that which I haven't really focused on much because we don't have much human work, but I think it's important to recognize that there are now several studies uh, going into more detail about anti-inflammatory effects not just in the liver, but throughout the body of aminos. And uh, I think that's the next target that uh, related to this topic that you're going to see coming along down the pike, that some of these formulations, particularly uh, analogous to the life formulation, is going to uh, be shown to uh, uh, in humans to decrease inflammation. It's, it's a tough one to... The problem with the human studies is that uh, you know, inflammation is a tough thing to actually quantify is to, you know, what exactly you're measuring, where you're measuring it and so forth. So, uh, I think that's why the animal studies have, have really gone well beyond the, uh, human studies. But I, I think that's the next area that you're going to see relative to, uh, some of these things we've just been talking about that, that's going to prove to be beneficial. Yeah, I mean, inflammation is just huge. There's so many factors causing inflammation nowadays, anything from stress to emotions to bad sleep to toxins. I mean, it's unlimited. And yeah. So anything that can quell that inflammation and help get that uh, cellular, you know, once the inflammation wraps around that cell, you have a hard time, you know, uh, you know, getting hormonal signals and different things. So it just causes a cascade of issues. So anything that's anti-inflammatory and is also beneficial, I think, is going to be kind of like a, a magic bullet. Yeah, well, and, and of course, the inflammation decreases the effectiveness of normal nutrition on uh, muscle and other processes in the body. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a real uh, uh, real challenge, but I think one that uh, that that the amino are going to be the direction that will resolve that ultimately. Awesome, cool. So, but just before I let you go, I just want some practical applications on. Um, 
you know, dosing, what time of the day, um, you know, empty stomach with food, anything like that, that you think uh, listeners should know before they purchase some products? I think that uh, the, the dosing and the uh, uh, timing and whether with or without meals is, is uh, really depends on what the goals are. Uh, we found that as low a dose of uh, as 3.8 grams of the life is very effective over a long term. However, it's less effective than if you double the dose. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it only stands to reason that you get a, get a bigger effect if you increase the dosage. So as far as muscle, you can take a small amount uh, and, and as long as you're consistent with it. It doesn't really matter if you take it in the fasting state or the fed state as far as effectiveness because uh, the concentration goes up so high so rapidly that it actually activates the whole process of protein metabolism so that the dietary protein that you're eating with the uh, uh, essentials is going to be better used as well so that there's some advantage to taking it with a meal. But the the flip side of that is if you take it in the, in the fasting state where you have no food coming into the body, then the breakdown of muscle protein provides the amino acids into the blood that tissues like the liver and heart that can't afford to be without uh, require. So that uh, what, what happens is that you're losing muscle protein in the, in the post-absorptive state. And if you eat or take the aminos in the post-absorptive state, then you're going to cut that source of loss of protein down. So there's advantages to doing it both ways. If you, uh, uh, I think that the thing that's clear, if you're doing a workout, that it's something like the perform before the workout and heal after the workout is really the best combination because that, that's targeting uh, alertness and, and excitement about doing the workout primarily uh uh, with the perform and then the heel is really uh, uh, the post-exercise recovery is really not any different than recovery from anything even more severe like surgery or, or severe illness and, and that's where the heel has been specifically targeted. The only case where we really know we have to take a little bit more is the liver clearance and in, in the liver studies we uh, did two we've done different doses and uh, uh, nine grams per day was not effective, where 13 grams was very effective. So there, there is a higher requirement for the uh, dose effect for the purity than for, uh, for the <clears throat> others. But if you're going to look for optimal effectiveness, you know, the more, more you take, the better. Uh, but then, you know, it just depends, you know, how, how focused you are on it. I mean, if, if you think about bodybuilders that get up in the middle of the night to eat a giant meal, uh, you know, if that's your goal, then take lots of the aminos. If your goal is general health and uh, fitness, then you can get by with a much lower dose. I, I don't think there's a definitive answer to dose or timing. The major thing that I find important is to just have a routine. You take it, at, you know, like I take perform when I first get up in the morning. I take uh, heal after I do a workout. And uh, if I, I like to play golf in the afternoon and I'm walking, I'll take uh, some life or perform to drink uh, during the exercise. Uh, at my age, I'm 76, so the life sh should be uh, uh, part of my routine as well. But uh, 
to some extent, that's alleviated by the fact that I uh, am exercising, working out every day, so that I'm really targeting my aminos more in relation to the exercise than the aging factor. But uh, a lot has to do with how, what you like. I mean, I think that there's there's common benefits of all of the aminos. I think that what you're particularly worried about, if it's liver health or muscle or attention, uh, you know, that, that there's going to be a focus on those, but it's not really uh, uh, devoid of effects on other all the beneficial effects of the aminos you'll get with any of the formulations, but they're just beneficially targeting particular uh, points of interest. Awesome. That was amazing. Um, I think we covered pretty much everything in my notes. Sounds like if people want to try this stuff out, I mean, just for a little um, suggestion on what I do personally, um, I, I like to eat breakfast. I'm a breakfast guy. I know some people do the fasting. I used to, but I kind of uh, feel better with breakfast. And then I like to take the aminos um, in between my meals. So like, you know, I have breakfast mm-hmm. and three, four hours later, I have a dose of aminos. And then I can go another two, three hours without even eating food. Next thing you know, it's 2, 3 p.m. before I'm even having lunch. And then uh, usually between lunch and dinner, I have some uh, aminos again at some point. And it kind of just helps me where I can just easily do that three meals a day without any kind of cravings or, you know, um, even really thinking about food. And it helps me just have maintain kind of steady energy as well. And I, absolutely. What I, that's actually what I do with the... Uh... When I say I put, take it during golf, it's because, you know, you take something like that's between meals mm-hmm. and it really kills any craving at all. So that, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that, that I'm not exactly sure why the uh, cravings are are dealt with, but it's absolutely true that, that you uh, have a, a, a dose of the aminos between breakfast and lunch and particularly lunch and dinner. It definitely cuts down the uh, <laughs> crackers and cheese and stuff that I eat before dinner. Yeah. So uh, I find it uh, uh, that's really, I think, the best approach. Yeah, I just had a show yesterday with uh, Catherine from Energy Bits, my favorite kind of algae spirulina chlorella company. And I was talking on there, if you take even before a workout for a good workout or just to cut cravings, like to banish them, you take, you know, 10, 20 spirulina caps with, with some aminos, you're at basically no calories and you won't think about food for three, four hours. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. That combo together is unreal. Mm, that's interesting. I haven't tried that. Yeah. I mean, you're getting basically no calories, no sugar, no anything. You're getting lots of nutrients, aminos and B vitamins and every everything from the algae, and then you're also obviously what we're talking about the um, the uh, cravings that you lose from the aminos, like them two together pre workout and in between meals, like you you won't worry about food for a, a hot while. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and and your body composition will reflect that because uh, percent muscle will go up and percent fat will go down. Cool. Awesome. Well, um, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I thought it was amazing. You're a wealth of knowledge. Thanks for all the research you do. Why don't you let everyone know like where to find the Amino Company, whether it's social media or website or whatever, or find your work as well? I think there's a website. I'm not really involved in the marketing, but there's an Amino Co. website. And yeah. it's also available on Amazon, uh, uh, the amino products. I mean, I, so I think that the, the best effect, best approach is to go on the website aminoco.com. And, yeah, I have the uh, website in the show notes too. 
And as I said, I think that I know for a fact now it's available from Amazon as well. Cool. Where can people find some of your research and your work if they want to look more into you? Well, I think that uh, the best thing to do would be to look up uh, on on uh, Google. You can look up uh, uh, Google Scholar and put my name, Robert R. Wolf, and I'll have all my publications. So it'll show that uh, my it, it lists the publications and how many citations each pa- paper has had and total citations in other scientific papers. And it'll show that I've had my papers have been cited over 80,000 times in other scientific papers. So uh, that gives the opportunity for uh, somebody to, to look at what the basic research is and how well accepted it is by other uh, experts in the field. That's just, that's just been cited just a couple times. <laughs> yeah. That's quite a bit. So I, uh, I award you and I honor you for that dedication to research throughout all of the years uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed it, and uh, good luck with your show. Thank you. Stick around while I close out for a minute. Okay. If you enjoy this show, would you please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review it for me? Also, if you'd like to know more information about Combo, personalized one-on-one coaching with me, or for upcoming retreat information, which I host with my wife, please visit my website in the show notes or DM me on Instagram. My handle over there is at Integrative Matt. Until next time, my friends.